Well, good morning, guys. I'm glad that uh, you're here this morning, that you chose to join us at Restore, and I'm incredibly glad to be here. I was telling uh, some of my friends a few minutes ago just how um, how rejuvenating it is for me uh, to be here in this place um, with you all. It is, um, yeah, it's just good to be among folks who are on mission together and who believe uh, Jesus knew what he was talking about and who are living radically for him. And so thanks for being that for us. Um, If you're not a part of Restore yet and you don't call this your home, um, I think you should consider it because this place is incredible. Um, My wife and I are are, uh, missionaries in Baltimore City. Uh, We just moved there a couple months ago and we uh, are uh, just so blessed to be able to be a part of uh, the beautiful city of Baltimore. And if you would like to see it, you should come up and visit us. I'd love to show you around. this last week, uh, part of how God uses uh, my wife and I specifically is just uh, spending a lot of time on our front porch. Um, those of you who've been up to visit our house have seen uh, just how great our front porch is. So we spent a lot of time sitting out there, um, hanging out with people. And uh, this week was particularly exhausting. I'm like the most extroverted person you'll ever meet. Um, and I was exhausted of people last night to the point where uh, I texted my wife at work and said, please pray for me so I don't kill one of our children. <laughs> Is this recording? Sorry. Um, yeah, so anyways, uh, it, was, it was a tough week. So I got to tell you, um, anything that God, you know, I spent, of course, hours preparing this and, and practicing and stuff, but I still feel like anything that comes out of this today has got to be uh, God and the Holy Spirit. So uh, I pray that he does use uh, these words to speak to you today. Um, but uh, it's going to be from him. So let's open with prayer. God, um, it is an honor to be a part of your mission. Um, So I pray today, God, that you would uh, use me as your voice, um, that you would uh, speak to us through your scriptures, that we would hear uh, what it is that we're called to, um, and that uh, your spirit would be present among us. We know that it is. Um, And I pray, God, um, just that this would be a message that is yours. So we put it in your hands um, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, uh, I don't know if you have uh, friends who are Orthodox Jews, um, but I do. And uh, one of the things that I am constantly amazed uh, at uh, when it comes to Orthodox Jews is that they have this incredible ability. I call them the memory keepers. They have this like ability and this desire to remember their heritage and to share it with each other and with others. And it's really quite remarkable to me because I don't, I don't really see many cultures doing that. Um, but uh, they seem to do this incredible job at remembering their heritage and reminding one another that they're a part of this grand narrative as the chosen ones, the chosen people of God. Um, as a result of this constant uh, reminding of each other and storytelling, even the youngest of Jewish kids knows uh, their story and knows how providential the journey of their people has been. Uh, And it's really pretty incredible how this narrative for the Jewish people of God's provision and protection has really enabled them throughout the ages to have the courage and even the ability to survive all sorts of things, right? We, if you look into the Jewish um, history, you know that uh, they had their homes destroyed over and over again, their lands taken from them, their, uh, you know, Im- unimaginable insults and mockery even today, um, and of course, several genocides. Um, it is uh, a history that you would not think a people group would survive, um, 
but they have been able to survive it. And two of the things that are constant for the Jewish people when you go back and study them um, is that they have always had struggle. From the very beginning, uh, the Jewish people have experienced struggle. In fact, the name of their nation, Israel, actually means to wrestle with God. Um, like that's, that's who their people group is, that they will be continually wrestling and struggling. And the other thing that is a constant for the Jewish people is that they never really have a true place to call home. Um, they never have a, a land that is theirs. Um, and so these are two things that mark the Jewish people as uh, what we're going to call exiles. So there are people who don't really belong in a place, who are outcast and who are on the fringes. Um, and when you think about the Jewish people, um, from the very beginning, they were exiled. God's people from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, were exiled from the garden because of their sin. And then Abraham lived on the move. And then Joseph lived as an exile in the, um, with the Pharaoh in his household, you know, like being able to, uh, like talk about being an exile, you know, like he's living amongst the power group um, who is... Uh, over his people, you know, so Joseph experienced it. And then, of course, Moses, you know, lived as an exile, watching his own people uh, enslaved. Um, God's people from the beginning have been exiles. Uh, in the time of Moses, you know, if you'll remember the story of Moses, he was the one that God used to get the people out of Egypt and to rescue his people. But God doesn't rescue the people out of Egypt and send them to the promised land immediately. If you recall their story, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert and it's, uh, it's tough. It's a struggle, right? Um, and so their story continues with the struggle. And then as Moses is about to die, he hands over the reins to Joshua. Um, and that's what we're going to be uh, in the story of Joshua today. So if you want to pick up a Bible next to you um, uh, and turn to Joshua chapter 24, we're going to start in the beginning of that. When Moses is about to die, he puts Joshua in charge of the people. And then Joshua crosses the River Jordan with um, the Jewish people and enters into the promised land. And it's evident as they go throughout the promised land that God is going before them, that God's preparing their path, that God is beside them on the journey, and that God is even going behind them, protecting their way. Um, it's evident over and over again of God's presence. And so Joshua, in the end of uh, his book, in Joshua chapter four, 24, we read Joshua gathering all of the people up and reminding them, because Joshua knows that his time is coming to an end. So he gathers them all together and he reminds them, which the Jewish people are so good at doing, this is our heritage. God has been faithful to us. God has done great things. And so we're going to pick up there and read just a little bit of it. I'm going to kind of skip around, but we're going to start in Joshua chapter 24. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And then he begins to tell the story of Abraham and the story of Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And then in verse 5, uh, he says, then I sent Moses and Aaron, this is God speaking now, then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued, pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians, when you lived in the desert for a long time. Let's skip down to uh, verse 11. 
Then you crossed the Jordan and came to, the Jer came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave uh, them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities that you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Again, reminding them, look, God has been with us. Look what God has provided for us. Look what God has done for us. Don't forget God. And then here's the challenge. Uh, Joshua says, now fear the Lord and serve him with faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped before, uh, beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But Joshua says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so the people are reminded of what God has done for them and how he's gone before them. In verse 26, then, Joshua sets up um, a reminder for them, a physical reminder that they can see. He takes some stones, uh, what they call an Ebenezer. It's a monument, and Joshua sets it up to remind the people of what God has done for them. And that moment served as a signpost going forward for the people to remember their covenant, their promise that they made to God, this contract that they entered into, that they chose to be God's people and to live for him and for him alone on his mission. The Jewish people are incredible at reminding themselves and, and at uh, carrying these memories uh, with them. Uh, when you look at uh, the Holocaust mu Museum in Washington, D.C., um, if you guys have been there before, when you go there, there's a wall called the Wall of Remembrance. And on it, it says, only guard yourself and guard your soul carefully lest you forget the things your eyes saw and lest these things depart from your heart all, these, all the days of your life and you shall make them known to your children and to your children's children. That's from Deuteronomy chapter four, verse nine. So that's uh, from the very beginning of the Bible. It's this incredible quote reminding them, don't forget, you know, Jewish people, don't forget what God has done for you, how God has saved you. Um, I, I do like um, in regards to that specific quote, what, uh, um, Leslie Koppelman Ross says, this uh, Jewish author says uh, this quote, the biblical citation etched into that wall that we just read, while an apt admonition in the face of Auschwitz, it's actually out of context. What the original usage enjoins us never forget is the experience at Mount Sinai and the laws that God gave to us there, the positive context for purposeful living. What we have to keep in mind in recalling the Holocaust is this, and this is the key right here, that memory must function as it does in the Bible as a positive force. It should not be used to inflict guilt and exact revenge and certainly should not uh, be, as unfortunately occurs, uh, the defining element of Jewish life. We cannot raise our children to be healthy, constructive Jews by cowering them with expectations that the anti-Semitic world will force Jewish identification on them. Being Jewish mainly because of the Holocaust happened or because anti-Semitism continues is not sufficient reason to hang on to a culture. You see, uh, Leslie Koppelman Ross is reminding the Jewish people that God intended memories to be used as a positive propellant forward, that we should be driven to action because of our memories of what God has done for us. Um, and 
it got me to wondering what are our memories as Christians? What, what do we as a collective uh, sitting here today as American Christians, what is our, what are our memories? Um, and I titled this sermon Dangerous Memories because I believe that when we follow Jesus, he lived a dangerous lifestyle. He had some incredibly dangerous dreams. And remembering what he did is dangerous. Um, so I wondered, like, what, what are our memories as Christians? And I realized that for me uh, and my story, uh, and I would say that probably this is the same for most of us here, um, that Satan has fooled us into believing that Jesus was leading our nation in the mid-20th century, that in the 1950s, uh, Satan has convinced us that our best memory as Christians, what we should look, look forward to, what we should dream about, the biggest memory, best memory we have is of a day in America in the 1950s when drinking and smoking and rock and roll were frowned upon and when uh, everyone showed up at church on Sunday morning and stayed after for the potlucks. And that is the best memory that we have. Um, and I'll tell you guys, I want to believe that this land that we live in is a Christian nation, but it's not. Um, and we, we actually live in what theologians call a post-Christendom world, meaning um, from the time of Nero, um, not Nero, um, Constantine, when Constantine uh, basically wed the church and the state together, um, we have had multiple empires across the span of history that have taken the church as its bride and have um, distorted it because of such. Uh, you see it most strongly in history throughout um, uh, the Dark Ages, throughout um, uh, you know, that time in history, and as they, um, as the people and popes became, you know, were in bed with the kings, and you see how the two become intertwined, and really what happens is the church ends up taking, or the state ends up taking more from the church, and the church kind of loses its identity, but we live in a world now where Jesus is no longer a household name. Most of your neighbors, I lived in Silver Spring for two years, most of your neighbors don't own a Bible. <laughs> Most of them, uh, the mass majority of them, don't claim Christ as their Savior and King. Um, and, and all of that got to me, to it kind of begged the question for me, was Jesus ever at the reins in our country? Or, going back further, was Jesus ever at the reins in any nation? Was Jesus ever uh, the top um, decision maker in any um, in any country in history? Or was Jesus, uh, did he take a completely different tact? Was he born as a refugee on, on the run his entire life, uh, being hunted literally and then eventually imprisoned and murdered? Um, it's a different way to look at Jesus, right? Instead of wanting Jesus to be our president here in America and looking at him as a subversive exile, which is what he was. Um, and I, that's what I want to do today. I, I want to look at who was Jesus and how did he live as an exile and how do we live as exiles in our own country? See, uh, I think if we fail to remember who Jesus was, then our best memories are false memories of the 1950s in America. And that's the best thing we have to look forward to. And see, I think when we have memories like that, that just leads us to nostalgia. It's like, pull up a chair, let's sit around and let's remember what, how things used to be. Uh, you know, maybe someday we'll get back to that, but it doesn't lead you to action. It doesn't lead you to actually uh, doing radical things for, Je 
<clears throat> for Jesus. The second thing that it can do if we don't remember who Jesus was is that we as exiles can find ourselves preoccupi- preoccupied with our own self-preservation. We can think about what's best for my people group, for who I am, for my family. Like, what's best for me? How do I survive? And, and as an exile, you can see how that would be a, a natural way to feel, right? That would be a natural way to live self-preservation. But uh, it's not the way that Jesus lived, and it's not the way uh, that so many who followed in his way um, have lived. So I think there's a price that we pay uh, when those false memories dictate who we see Jesus as and what we see in the future for us as exiles. Uh, I think the price that we pay for our relative ease and comfort is, is that we won't be remembered in the great stories of our people. Uh, that, that I don't want to die in obscurity among the masses without a legacy. I want to be a part of this beautiful story that God is telling. Uh, and I think it, it beckons us to call or to live different lives as exiles. So we can allow our memories to embitter and drive us further into protective seclusion where we're safe and surviving. Uh, Or we can allow our memories to lull us into nostalgia. Or I think the third option and the better option I'm going to propose today is that we choose to remember the story, God's story, that we are a part of and we're invited to be a part of. And let that lead us into action um, as servants of uh, King Jesus. See, exiles need, they need something to survive. Um, I believe exiles need stories of hope and stories of liberation. When you look um, at uh, the uh, the stories of of Jewish folks when they were enduring um, Hitler's reign, hope and the, the idea of liberation was what kept them going. Um, and we need to have stories like that that we draw on. That's what motivates the exile in a foreign land to push on, to live a full life, to dream. And as Christians, our hope, our stories of hope and liberation are centered around the person of Jesus Christ, an exile himself, one who was unwelcomed in his own hum- hometown, one who was unwanted by his own people, cast out. Uh, Jesus showed us what it was like to live as an exile, and he beckons us to come and follow him in his way. He gave us a new law to live by, a new uh, ideas uh, for which give us purpose and give us direction. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if we use these two things to propel us forward, we won't be nostalgically sitting around a campfire with other people who are already believe the same thing. We'll be living as missionaries and we'll be actively engaging our communities. So I believe that we have dangerous memories as Christians. When we follow Jesus, there are memories that will be dangerous. Um, and here's some of them. Because I believe that Our memories are potent. I believe that if you follow Jesus and if you love him, that when you remember his life, it should be life-changing for you and it should be motivating to propel you forward as a positive memory. Here's some of those dangerous memories. Number one, we remember that Jesus was and continues to be our liberator. Um, That Jesus says that he will come and rescue us and God's story from the very beginning has been a story of rescue and a story of redemption, and a story of hope. And if we remember that Jesus is our liberator, then we remember that what we're enduring right now 
is not the end, and that what we're enduring right now um, is a part of the story, and we have hope for liberation and hope um, for being saved from our sins and from the chaos that we live amidst. Um, But that's a dangerous memory because no empire wants a liberator, right? Um, You know, the Pharaoh did not want to hear from Moses, right? That he was there to liberate the people. Um, And so it's a dangerous memory to have. Another dangerous memory is memories of Jesus's resurrection. Recalling the fact that Jesus defeated death, not just once, but for all. That Jesus took Satan's biggest tool and demolished it. Like, you know, that'd be like if we were going to war with someone and and we got rid of all their nukes or something, right? Like, all of a sudden, like, they seem a lot more impotent, right? And, And that's what Jesus has done to Satan by conquering death. And if we remember Jesus's resurrection and the power that that holds for us, then we're reminded that we don't have anything that we should fear. If death is the scariest thing on earth, which it is, and our king has conquered it, and we don't fear death, then we have nothing to fear. And if we live as fearless people, that too is a dangerous memory because the empire uses fear to control people. And that's how empires have always been. Um, but Jesus doesn't use fear as a manipulative tool. He doesn't use it. In fact, he, uh, he conquers death and gives us hope for a future. So that's another dangerous memory. And a, a third one I want to call your attention to a dangerous memory is the memory of our king. When we recall that Jesus, from the, the moment of his resurrection, has been seated on his throne and that he is today ruling and reigning over us, and when we claim that, uh, we are saying that we are going to follow Jesus' way and not the way of the empire, that we're going to live radical and subversive lives that look different uh, from the rest of the empire around us, and that means that you're going to stand out. And so it's a dangerous memory to have. I think these dangerous memories of who Jesus was and how he lived are incredibly dangerous memories to have. But it's not just the dangerous memories. We also have dangerous promises. Jesus promised dangerous things. And sometimes when we fail to recall the dangerous memories and remember who Jesus was and is on a regular basis, when we fail to remember those things, we find ourselves misreading scriptures like Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. We often uh, hear on TV from um, uh, different pastors, we hear uh, what we call the prosperity gospel. This idea that God wants nothing but good for you. That God wants literal wealth for you. That God wants good things and a big house and all of these things. And And if you're really living for him, then he will gift you with those things. And you will have uh, not just wealth, but health. And you will have this. This is called the prosperity gospel. And so this passage is often misused by the prosperity gospel. The fact of the matter is this passage is not, and Paul knew as a good Jew, that the, this passage was not an individualistic passage. But as Americans, we're individualistic people. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We live on our own, in our own sheer grit. And so we read this and we think, oh, God's going to do good things for me. And if I'm following him, then I'm going to have good things happen and nothing rough will happen in my life. That couldn't be further from the truth. Paul knew. And when he said this, Paul was speaking, uh, you know, as a community, he was speaking to the collective people. 
He was saying that God works for the good of his people and for his purposes. It's a collective goodness. And when we remember who Jesus was, we remember that Jesus's life and many other of God's people throughout scripture endured terrible things, right? I mean, they had incredibly tough lives, right? They, they had to endure terribly tough things and eventually many of them die terrible deaths. Um, and so for us to claim this passage and say that if I'm really living for, for Jesus, then I'll have it all good, it is really flying in the face of what Jesus said when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Do you remember what the cross is about? It's terrible. It's horrifying. You know, Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. And that uh, should be act as a reminder to us um, of what, uh, what it's like to follow Christ. But the good news is that as much pain and trauma as you as is inflicted upon you for following Christ in his way, God is at work in all things for the good of his people and his purposes. So regardless of what you're going through, not regardless because God doesn't care about you and what you're going through, he does and he walks with you, but be, regardless of that, God is at work uh, during good governments and bad empires, you know, during the senseless acts of good and bad people, all of these things are tools in the hands of an active, caring God who is faithful to bring about his purpose for the good of his people. Now, that's a dangerous promise for us, right? It's a dangerous promise because it's reminding us that we got to pick up our cross and we're going to endure some tough stuff to follow Jesus. That's why it's a dangerous promise. But there's a dangerous promise um, to the empire um, because Jesus is the liberator who's going to judge the nations. And that's a, a dangerous promise that the empire reads and sees as a, uh, you know, as war against them. And in Luke chapter four, verse 18, um, Jesus stands up in the temple among the Jewish people and he claims to be the Messiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me, Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was incredibly radical. And it was also the beginning of when the Jewish people started trying to kill Jesus because he claimed to literally be the Messiah. He claimed to be God. Um, and that's dangerous thing to do in the midst of the empire. It was dangerous for Jesus and it'll be dangerous for us when we claim that promise that he is our liberator. So we have dangerous memories. We have dangerous promises. But those are just thoughts, right? I think that when we take these dangerous memories and remind ourselves, when we remember his dangerous promises, that that will lead us to dangerous dreams. I believe that exiles dream dangerously. <laughs> that uh, exiles dream things that are uh, scary sometimes and that are, are pretty wild and out there. Think about some of the exiles throughout the Bible. Look at uh, King David, uh, who wrote most of the book of Psalms. Uh, he was, uh, of the Jewish people, he was the top dog. I mean, everybody looked back to King David. But King David got his start as an exile, as Saul, the current king, was chasing him down, was hunting him. He was a marked man running for his life from the empire. But David continued to dream knowing that God had plans for him and that God was going to bring him to the, uh, you know, to the throne and that God was going to use David. And so David, I imagine, dreamed dangerous dreams. I, we look at Jesus and his words and the things that Jesus says. 
and the stories that he tells. And it's evident that Jesus had some pretty dangerous dreams. You know, he talks about what he's, that he's going ahead to prepare us a place. Um, but Jesus dreamed dangerous dreams and his dangerous dreams led him to be imprisoned and killed, right? The apostle Paul, you know, I imagine he dreamed of a world that was covered with Jesus's people. And so the apostle Paul went out as a missionary and he went from town to town to town in dangerous lands and he started new churches. This was a dangerous dream that got Paul persecuted in all sorts of ways, stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned and beaten and eventually um, gets him killed. So the apostle Paul dreamed dangerous dreams. And then one of the most notable dreamers of our day, Martin Luther King Jr., a man who had a dream of people who looked different from one another and who had different histories coming together to live equally with one another and to not just live side by side, but to live together, to love one another and to be a part of each other's lives. A dream that still hasn't been fully actualized here in our country and a dream that was so dangerous that it got him killed. What about Nelson Mandela, a man who dreamed of his people coming together, white and black, and living side by side in equity and in love, um, blessing one another, and, and actually living life together. And that got him imprisoned, and the terrible things that he lived. Listen, exiles dream dangerous dreams. We as Christians, we don't belong to this nation. We don't belong to any nation other than the kingdom of God. That's where our allegiance is. That's who we belong to. And that uh, means that we are exiles no matter where we go. Um, and we've got to figure out how to live as exiles. And I think part of it, and you'll know that you're starting to live that way when you start to dream dangerous things. When you start to dream things that you realize are countercultural, that will get you in some hot water with people. Um, I think when you start doing that, that you're dreaming dangerous dreams. And I think that's important. I think it's uh, something that these men I just talked about, they all knew what it was like to be an outsider, to be an exile. They all knew what it was like to be hated uh, by people that they called their own. They knew what it was like to be hunted and falsely imprisoned for standing against the heinous ways of the empire. They all had prophetic dreams. They dreamed of a future. They dreamed of liberation. They dreamed of good things for God's people. And we've got to start dreaming things like that. If we're claiming to follow Christ, we need to dream dangerous dreams as exiles. Our dangerous memories, our dangerous promises lead us to dangerous dreams, but where does the action come in? It comes in when we wake up and start living like Jesus did. When we live dangerous lives, when we actually do what Jesus did, we stand in protest to the empire. We stand for different things than we're told to stand for. Jesus stood up for the oppressed, but let me tell you guys, Jesus didn't stand up for the oppressed by standing on a stage and yelling. He didn't stand up for the oppressed by standing on Facebook and telling you, you know, what he believed. Jesus stood for people, for the oppressed and the outcast by sitting with them, by standing with the woman who was about to be stoned for her sins, by eating with Zacchaeus, uh, a man who was outcast for being uh, a sinner. Um, you know, living among people who were not popular, fishermen like Andrew, Peter, James, and John, four of the disciples that Jesus lived life with, and his weird way of living, his radical, dangerous way of living led him to be constantly harassed by his people, to be hated and attacked for it. 
Guys, when we have uh, dangerous memories of Jesus and his radical way, it it invites us to come and join him on the narrow road, to choose a life of struggle, to accept our role as an exile in a foreign land. It looks like this. When we are exiles with prophetic voices and lives, we're doing things that are slow and subversive sometimes. It means living with your neighbors, loving your neighbors, like actually taking what Jesus said as being the second most important thing we can do. Love God, love your neighbors. When we actually take this as important, it's slow and it's subversive. Uh, We lived in Silver Spring for two years. And and many of you know, we spent thousands of hours loving our neighbors and spending time with them. And none of them came uh, to be baptized or even come to join us here at church, guys. But I believe that the ways of Jesus, the dangerous ways of Jesus are slow and subversive sometimes. Um, So when you choose to live in that way, in his uh, dangerous way of living, you're going to be outed. Carrying your cross will, uh, it will set you aside. You will no longer fit in and, and, you know, uh, become part of the masses. You'll stick out as someone who's weird, who's doing weird things. Um, And that's a good thing. Another way you know you're living as an exile. You don't fit in. Um, Guys, uh, Jesus calls us to live in a different way. He wants us to be revealing his kingdom more and more with our every action as we live dangerous lives. I I love what um, Michael Frost, uh, much of this came from, the content of this sermon came from a guy named uh, Michael Frost. He's an excellent author. He wrote this book called Exiles. I'll read this quote for you guys. Uh, Michael says that the Christian movement must be the living, breathing promise to society that it is possible to live out the values of Christ. That is to be a radical, troubling alternative to the power imbalance in the empire. In a world of greed and consumerism, the church ought to be a community of generosity and selflessness. In a host empire that is committed to marginalizing the poor, resisting the place of women, causing suffering to the disenfranchised, the Christian community must be a generous, uh, must be generous to a fault, pursuant to justice and flushed with mercy. We ought to look different. Exiles should stand out. Um, and so think about that as you consider how you're living on mission for Christ. What does this look like in our context? There's been a lot of talk recently in the news about monuments, right? And today we sit and we talk about monuments. Um, as I, I look back on many of the monuments that I've seen, and, and Baltimore City actually has more monuments than any other city in the nation. Um, so every corner in Baltimore, especially when you get further down into the, into the city, there are monuments everywhere. So there's more monuments there than anywhere else. Um, I realize that most of our monuments are celebrating war and death. And I think that we as Americans often convince ourselves of the Pax Americana. If you remember the Pax Romana, you remember that Rome basically said, we will bring peace, but it will be at a cost. It will come by the sword. And I think a lot of times, you know, we believe as Americans that that's the only way to bring peace. And it might be an easier way or a quicker way to do it, but it comes at a cost. And so Janet and I, uh, as I was doing this study and thinking about monuments, um, this, I didn't, craft this sermon before all the monument or after all the monument stuff it was before it so this is God's timing in this message I watched this movie called uh, Monuments Men I don't know if you guys have seen it um, it's an incredible movie uh, great cast I mean look at that um, but it's about uh, these men uh, who 
w- left America and went. Th- they were all um, historians and art, uh, you know, aficionados and stuff. So they went over to Europe as the World War II was wrapping up, and uh, as the Germans were leaving cities, they were blowing everything up, and they were destroying everything, leaving a path of chaos in their in their wake as they were leaving. And so these men went to save the monuments, and they went to save. Uh, they risked their lives, and several of them died, to risk uh, to save uh, monuments. And it was cool to me to see some of the monuments they were rescuing because they were all uh, monuments to God. They were all reminders of what God had done. Right? This is the Madonna and uh, paintings by um, you know Michelangelo and just incredible things. But they were monuments to God. So it made me long for better monuments here. It made me long for better monuments, but not better monuments to our country, but better monuments to our God. And so I want to invite you guys to start thinking creatively. I am not creative. So many of you are in this room as I look around the room. Think creatively. What are some new monuments that we could have um, that celebrate what Jesus has done? and that help us remember the dangerous memories we're called to remember. Help us recall the dangerous promises that um, Jesus gave to us. I think it's important that we have monuments that remind us. And so be thinking about that. Um, I have some ideas, but they're not great ones. I'm not even going to share them with you because they're kind of lame. But, uh, and because I don't want it to stifle you all in your imagination. But I would encourage you guys think about it. I, I'm going to go out to lunch afterwards if some of you guys want to join, you know, and, and start thinking creatively about new monuments. Um, let's pray. God.